Alright, uh, last week, a bit of a brain pull. It was kind of a, it was kind of the feel I got. Um, plus, plus my wife is a very good evaluator of how things, and she was the one that said, yeah, it was a little much last week. So, uh, not, not that I lost her, but she, she had the feeling that, uh, I may have, I may have, uh, I can't say bit off more than I could chew, bit off more than you could chew. I don't know how that works. That's kind of a gross analogy if I say bit off more than you can chew. Um, did you understand it? I think oh. I got it, yeah. I think I was, I think I was pretty good. Uh, we do have any, we do have extra notes. There is no new notes that's for tonight, but if anyone needs extras, uh, yeah. they're available over here. And the up through, uh, page, 26. Yeah, so if anyone needs any of those, if you've got a gap in your notes, feel free to, to pick those up. Well, what we were doing last week is going through uh, many of the traditional arguments for God's existence um, and showing, okay, this is how the, those who use these arguments intend them to be used, uh, but here are the problems with those arguments. And if you remember uh, very early on in this class, uh, I read an extended quote from, from Greg Bonson when he talked about having integrity in the argument um, And that's a very important consideration as we look at these as we look at these arguments because here's the reality. Okay, here's the reality. You go into your place of business and you use the argument that, yeah, there's so much design in this world, clearly it needs a designer. Is an argument like that effective? in your workplace? And the answer is, largely yes. Largely yes, right? Again, there's some people that may just be obstinate to the gospel, but that kind of argumentation is very successful in your place of work or when you're talking to unbelieving family members. You, you talk about, you know, everything needs a cause, and, and people just kind of resonate with that. That makes sense to them. Um, what Bonson says, though, is, even if an argument is persuasive, if we know that the argument is actually faulty, we really can't use it ethically, right? Um, and, and, and I mean, we know this just in, in issues of business ethics, right? There's there are certain things I could tell someone to generate a sale that that. I know they're going to be persuasive, but if there's actually a flaw in what I'm saying, it's not ethical for me to say that. I can't misrepresent how conclusive this argument is. Um, and so we, we started last week showing how, from an unbelieving perspective, uh, these arguments have problems. Okay. Uh, what were some of the problems that, that kind of happened across the board with these, with these arguments for the existence of God, what were some of the common criticisms that we offered for the cosmological argument, the teleological argument? Uh, those, those in particular we spent most of our time on. Uh, arguments for morality or religious practice. What? Yeah, that, that's, that's probably the biggest one that I would say. Is it, what kind of God does it point to? Yeah, kind of a higher power of some sort or another. Um, and that kind of God, so here's, here's the reason that that, is, that can be a problem. Um, what kind of being can we substitute for the one true God and be consistent with Christianity? What kind of being can we substitute for the one true God and still be consistent with Christianity? And the answer is nothing, right? I can't put up something similar to God and, and, and argue someone to that and consider that progress. So, so here's, here's the question. The deist, okay, if you remember from uh, your early American history, some of the, the founding fathers were deists, okay? Uh, deism, very, uh, a fairly common religious belief at that time. 
that says God created the world with uh, certain orderly laws, and really from that point on, he doesn't intervene in it any longer. Okay? Is that position any more Christian than atheism? And, and, and the answer is, in, a, in an ultimate sense, you have Christianity and you have everything else in the other category. If an atheist, so there is actually a very well-known case, at, at least among uh, in philosophers, there's, there's a British philosopher named Anthony Flew, F-L-E-W, Anthony Flew. Uh, for most of his life, Flew was an atheist. Uh, and, 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 and so, as a philosopher, he would write uh, works showing the impossibility, as he thought of it, of, of, of theism of any sort, of Christian theism in particular. Um, and so, he wrote uh, several very um, uh, well-known among philosophers works uh, against Christianity. But toward the end of his life, uh, Flew became convinced that the amazing amount of design in the world demands a designer. And so Flew publicly recanted some of his earlier works and wrote a book about how he believes in deism. Okay? And, and why did he convert to deism and not Christianity? Well, he said the evidence supports some sort of designer but not really any more than that. Okay. Now, what I want you to see is, is a couple of things. First, did Flew's conversion to deism, and, and he died shortly thereafter, did Flew's conversion to deism help him in any way in his eternal standing with God? No, it didn't. It didn't. And, and I don't say that with any glee whatsoever. That's a sad thing. Second, has Flew given up his basic worldview to adopt deism, to move from deism to atheism. Why did Flu become a deist? The evidence supported it. So in Flu's world, who's still the ultimate uh, guideline for what can be true and false? Himself. Flu has not repented. Does that make sense? When I present a sort of halfway house, a, a half attempt to get to Christianity, what I'm doing is trying to soften the intellectual repentance that the unbeliever must undergo. Does that, does that make sense? I, and, and so I think these arguments have a place, and we'll talk about how they do have a place. Um, but I think the way that they're most often used is, is something like this. You know, Mr. Unbeliever, Christianity isn't as irrational as you think. You can maintain the same rigorous standards for evidence that you've always had and submit Christianity to those evidence, to those tests. Make Christianity undergo your test, and it will pass with flying colors. And, and have I called the unbeliever to repent of the arrogance of his unbelief? And the answer there is no, I haven't. Have it. I've, I've not challenged him that in order for him to know anything at all, he has to submit to my Christ, which is ultimately what I want to say. Okay. So, so our big problem uh, with all of these arguments is that they argue for some sort of blank theism. Um, in, in particular, the teleological argument. Here, and I don't, I don't particularly. People use the expression, uh, I'll be the devil's advocate here, and I, I do like the retort that the devil really doesn't need advocates. But if I'm going to argue in favor of atheism, okay, I'll, I'll, be the, I'll be the village atheist here, right? And you say, look at all this design in the world. Doesn't that show that there has to be a designer? And this isn't unique with me. There have been, been atheists who have said this before. Is there evidence in this world of a lack of design? Is there anything in this world that evidences lack of design? And everything seems very well ordered, very... Is there, is there anything that if you were writing things, you might do different? 
do you see that there's all sorts of things that we say, you know what, a, a really good designer wouldn't let us get cancer. Now, you see this is very closely a variant of the problem of evil, which we're going to discuss. But there is what's called, and here's the term for it, an argument for, from dysteleology. Dysteleology. That says things like, um, oh, there's, there's all sorts of disorder in, in our universe as it stands right now. Things run down. Um, again, there's, there seems to be pointless suffering in the world. That, that, that seems to be disorderly. Um, and so if we're going to go where the evidence takes us in this, um, Hume, David Hume, I've mentioned him before, Hume argued that if we're just going to go on the basis of evidence, the, the way our universe is designed, Hume said, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying this, this is what Hume said, we should come to the conclusion that our universe was created as an early attempt by a relatively inexperienced deity. Now, obviously we think that, that, that is blasphemy, right? That is rightly considered blasphemy. But, if the unbeliever retains his autonomy, if you are putting Christianity under his worldview to be judged, he is, uh, entitled to come to that conclusion, right? You haven't undermined his worldview. You said your worldview is okay as it stands, just look at the evidence. If he looks at the evidence on his worldview, that's a legitimate conclusion. And so that's what we're looking at with, with these arguments. Is, is they're inadequate. They're, they're well-intentioned. People who use argumentation like this, I, I don't look at them as being on the other side, right? Um, you know, guys that come to college campuses and, and do arguments for the existence of God and and they use an argument like this. I, I don't think that they're, you know, agents of Satan or anything of that sort. They, they are, in the best way they know how, fighting for truth and fighting uh, the battle for, for righteousness and for the honor of our Lord. And I, and I praise God for that. Um, but, uh, just as, you know, we could multiply examples of people, for instance, who've been converted in ministries under pastors, that we look at and go, their methods are wrong, their theology is wrong. I think the good that these people do is, is really undercut by the sort of argumentation that they're using. Any, does anyone have any questions about um, the, the traditional theistic arguments that we looked at last week? The argument from morality or from religious experience or, or any of those that we talked about? Thoughts or questions about those? I will give you time. <clears throat> Alright, let's move on then to evidential theistic proofs. Evidential theistic proofs. We made the distinction last week. A classical apologist says, I need to give the rational arguments for God's existence before I can move on to the empirical evidences. Right? Whereas the evidentialist apologist says, I can start anywhere. I can start with miracles. I can start with uh, creation science, whatever. Um, for our purposes, the, that distinction is, is not a, a hugely important one. I think both of them submit to the unbeliever's autonomy in trying to defend the faith. Right? So, but for, for classification's sake, we break them up. Uh, evidential. Arguments are genu generally distinguished from the classical theistic groups in that they appeal to empirical evidence. Uh, review what is empirical evidence? Evidence that what? What's something that's empirical? Something that I can perceive with my senses. Okay? When I talk about something empirical, I'm talking about something that's that I, I gather my sense experience. I can taste it. I can. So, what what counts as evidence for the existence of God? Well, some people will say, what did what did uh, the Apostle Thomas say? I'll believe in the resurrection if what? If I can touch it. If I can put my hands in those. The, that he was an empiricist. Okay, Thomas. 
is an empiricist. He's, unless, I can, unless I have sense experience data, and you meet people like this, right? I believe in God if he'd just appear to me, right? And, and the reality is, just, we're going to pause here. I want to show you one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture about this. Turn to, turn to Matthew. Very last chapter of the book of Matthew. This, this is a verse, you, if you've read through your Bible, you've read through your New Testament, you, you, you've read it before, and you, you may have missed this expression entirely, or if you've seen this expression, uh, having a class on apologetics will help you see it in a new light. Look at verse 16, Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, what? But some doubted. So the guy who said, if I could just see, I would believe. The Bible itself says, no you wouldn't. No you wouldn't. Right? Because we've all seen things. You, 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 You've all seen things or heard things that you go, okay, I just saw that over there, but that can't be. Right? You've had experiences like that. You know, I just saw that thing move, but I'm the only one in the house, so that I, I, my mind's playing tricks on me, right? Or I, I, I heard something downstairs, but there's no one down there, and I can't explain it. I may not be able to prove it, but it can't be. Right? We all have experiences where we doubt our senses. If the atheist saw God, he would come up with some reason to doubt his experience. Okay. The, the, God's problem is not a lack of evidence. Um, the, the unbeliever's problem is a lack of a converted heart. So, again, empirical evidence. We're talking about that which we can sense. Uh, sight, taste, touch, uh, hearing, whatever. Evidential apologists, then, maintain that the evidential arguments carry the same authority as the rational arguments. And again, we talked about this last week. That the, the evidentialist says, hey, I'll start, I'll start with any piece of argument. So, here's a big one. Miracles. Miracles. Technically speaking, argument, the argument for miracles is the broad category to which more specific examples, such as the resurrection and flood research, belong. We're going to talk about those, but just, just so we have an idea. The Okay, how, how does the argument for miracles go? It basically says... This miraculous thing was done. Miracles can only be caused by someone who's supernatural, so God must exist. That's the essence of it. Okay, that's kind of a sloppy formulation, but that's, that's the essence of it. Here, if I could prove that this miracle exists, God must exist. All right. Um, let's look at the basic problem with that. C.F. Lewis. Who C.F. Lewis is interesting. I don't know how much of Lewis you guys have read. My wife and I are actually... Uh, reading through the Chronicles of Narnia right now, and, and just enjoying that. Uh, Lewis is a great writer, and, and if you want to know Christ better, it's worthwhile getting to know Lewis of Avalon. Uh, I will say, just a little, Lewis's portrayal, and, and whether you've read the books or you watch the movie, never judge a book by its movie. Um... <clears throat> But the story of the sacrifice of Aslan it actually has some theological issues to it. Um, but if you want to go into the details of that, come talk to me afterward. But Lewis is a great writer. Uh, I, I disagree with certain elements of his theology. He has a book called The Problem of Pain, which is a book on the problem of evil. It's, it's a lot of very interesting stuff, but he actually has a chapter called uh, Animal Pain. And his argument is that animals suffer, but animals aren't, certainly aren't suffering because God is building character in them, right? That, that would be silly. So, uh, Lewis says, God has to make it up to him somehow, and so your dog does go to heaven. That's C.S. Lewis for you, okay? So a brilliant thinker, and, and every so often he throws an idea out at you, and you go... All right. But, C.F. Lewis's book, Miracles, which is actually very good, uh, very good for the most part, I would, I would buy into what he says here, uh, points out the basic problems of using miracles as evidence. And I agree with everything he says right here. 
Before the naturalist and the supernaturalist, okay, we need to understand, I think it's fairly clear how he's using his terms. A naturalist says, this universe is all that there is. The supernaturalist says, there's something beyond this universe. Now, I want you to see, right at, right at the outset, it does entail some pretty significant changes in the way we think about things, right? Because what does it mean for, for God not to be part of the universe? Well, it means what we've talked about at the outset of this course, the creative-creature distinction, right? But you have problems conceiving of that. Um, I've, I've tried to mess with people's heads before. I, you get the idea I like messing with people's heads. One of my favorites. Before creation, what existed? Okay, God. Was there a void? Was, was there a, a, an emptiness before God created? No. There was no emptiness. Okay, imagine no emptiness. You can't. Because, because what's there in place of the no emptiness? Emptiness. Right? You've got to, you, you can't even conceive of a non-existing void. Right? Or, you know, the, the, the question of the relationship of God and time. Time is a measure of change. Right? If nothing changes, there is no time. Does that, does that make sense? We measure time using using motion most often. If nothing's changing, there's no time. There's no sequence. Before creation, there was no time. Okay? Now that messes with your head. Especially when you start asking questions like, what happened the moment before creation? Because the reality is there was no moment before creation. Okay? It, it, there is a story told. I believe it's about Thomas Aquinas, the, the Roman Catholic theologian. The question was asked of him, what was God doing before creation? And his answer was preparing hell for people who ask questions like that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is one of my all-time favorite theology responses. But the naturalist believes time, matter, space, energy, all that exists. The supernaturalist says, yes, and there is that which is beyond those things. Okay? And that's, that's true, right? We are supernaturalists. We believe that something exists, or more specifically, someone exists, who is not part of creation. Alright. So before the naturalist and the supernaturalist can begin to discuss their difference of opinion, they must surely have an agreed definition of both nature and supernature. But unfortunately, it is almost impossible to get such a definition. Just because the naturalist thinks that nothing but nature exists, the word nature means to him everything, or the whole show, or whatever, whatever there is. And if that is what we mean by nature, then of course, nothing else exists. Do you see how that follows? If, if I say, the universe is everything, and I say, yes, but there's something beyond that. Do you see how those two statements can't go? That, that can't work. Right? If nature is everything, there can't be something else. Because then, by definition, nature isn't everything. The real question between him and the supernaturalist has evaded us. With what the supernaturalist believes is the ultimate fact, the thing you can't go behind, is a vast process in space and time which is going on of its own accord. Inside that total system, every particular event, such as you're sitting reading this book, uh, and this obviously he's re referring to his own book there, happens because some other event has happened, right? Sequence of cause and effect. In the long run, because the total event is happening. Each particular thing, such as this page, is what it is, because other things are what they are. And so eventually, because the whole system is what it is, was it, uh, is what it is. All the things and events are so completely interlocked that no one of them can claim the slightest independence from the whole show. None of them exists on its own, or goes of its own accord. Now, I want you to think about the implications of this. If nothing can exist on its own, or nothing can go of its own accord, what kind of being can't exist? And the answer would be the Christian God. 
that makes sense. The Christian God exists on its own, or on his own. He goes of his own accord. You always have to remember, creation was a decision of God. Creation is unnecessary. And that has its own logical issues that we could, we could delve into. But if we're going to re retain the freedom of God, we have to recognize that as soon as we get into any system that makes creation necessary, we've taken a misstep somewhere. Because once create, and, and I want you to see the implications of this, once creation is necessary, God needs us as much as we need God. And do you see how that's a problem? We've gone wrong in our theology somewhere. As soon as God needs us as much as we need God, we have something less than the Christian God. Okay? And, and, and so, the, the naturalist, none of them exist on their own. None goes of its own accord, except in the sense that it exhibits at some uh, particular place in time that general existence on its own or behavior of its own accord, which belongs to nature as a whole. The supernaturalist agrees with the naturalist there, that there must be something that exists in its own right. Again, so let me clarify here. The naturalist, what does he believe exists on its own? And his only answer is the whole show, right? Nature exists on its own. Nature is its own explanation. Uh, the supernaturalist agrees with the naturalist that there must be something which exists in its own right. Some basic fact whose existence it would be nonsensical to try to explain because the fact is itself the ground or the starting point of all explanation. That sounds like exactly like what we've been saying, right? Christianity is the ground or the, the basis of every other explanation. But he does not identify this fact with the whole show. He thinks that things fall into two classes. You want to make a marginal note? Creator-creature distinction. In the first class, we find either things or, now I want you to notice, C.F. Lewis is no presuppositionalist, more probably one thing. Right? Lewis is, kind of, Lewis is very friendly here. He leaves the door open. Which is basic and original, which exists on its own. In the second class, we find things which are merely derivative from that one thing. The one basic thing has caused all the other things to be. It exists on its own. They exist because it exists. They will cease to exist if it ever ceases to maintain them in existence. They will be altered if it ever alters them. Okay, and I think that's good theology right there. Thus the unbeliever, on his own worldview, cannot even acknowledge the possibility of a miracle. Does that make sense? If someone says, I don't believe in miracles, and you say, let me show you evidence for a miracle. Okay, so give, give, me, give me a Christian miracle that we might show them example, uh, evidence of. Resurrection. The resurrection. This is the prime example, and I think we actually talk about it specifically next. All right, so I'm going to prove the resurrection. What sort of evidences will this man accept for the resurrection occurring? Eyewitnesses. So I, I give him eyewitnesses. Let, let's let's uh, do a little thought experiment here. Let's say I, I have modern technology, right? And I, I can bring it back to that time. And so I have I have all kinds of... What, what other sorts of evidences could I have if I had modern technology at the time Jesus rose from the dead? No I, I've got no body, okay? That's, that's one. I've got videotape of him coming out of the tomb. Okay, this is a, you see the sort of thing I'm talking about. I've got videotape of him. I, I can do DNA matching on the, the shroud, right? Whether the, the shroud of Turin or, you know, whatever. I can do DNA matching on the shroud and show, look, it matches Jesus' hair sample here. I have, I have uh, the coroner's report showing that he died. I have... Um, I have this and that. Look, he's here. He shook your hand. Okay. So the unbeliever is faced with this overwhelming evidence. And I think I asked you this earlier, so we'll see if you can remember a question I asked earlier. Can he accept Jesus' resurrection and remain a naturalist? 
If the virgin birth is mentioned so rarely in Scripture, did the fundamentalists make this such a big test of whether you were orthodox? Because if you give up the virgin birth, almost inevitably, it's because you're giving up a supernaturalist worldview. Does that make sense? It was a great acid test of whether someone was committed to what Scripture said, regardless of whether it seemed uh, reasonable. Does that make sense? Um, now, I'll, I'll, I'll. so we have these miracle claims that are essential to the Christian faith, the virgin birth, the, the resurrection. I would submit any miracle claim in Scripture is ultimately essential to the faith because those who deny it end up denying the inerrancy of Scripture, right? So someone says, I don't think Jonah really happened or the flood was just a local flood or creation really happened by evolution. I think those are all dangerous attacks on Scripture because they show a certain uh, tendency to put uh, rational categories and make those the grid that we filter whether something can be true or not. True. Okay, I think that's a problem. Um, so, the flood. We, we defend the That's a miracle. And I, if I could prove the flood, if we could just find Noah's Ark, or, you know, whatever. Are there other religions that make miracle claims an important part of their defense. Any, can anyone think of any examples? The Mormons, I think, certainly do. Yeah, uh, the, the the whole revelation of the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith. You ever talk? You ever talk to someone who is a committed Roman Catholic? Roman Catholic. I had a guy when I was when I taught at the college that I was at for the last four years. There was a, there was a gentleman who, he was an older man, um, and he would call all the time, come into my office and, and talk. And he want, I think he, he was really trying to convert me to Roman Catholicism. And he, he sincere effort to try to convert me. And, and at a certain point, I, I really broke off conversation because um, I'm not going to convert to Roman Catholicism, and if he's not willing to listen... I want to say this kindly and cautiously, but Jesus told us not to cast pearls before swine. I don't, I don't use that verse lightly, but the verse does have to mean something. Okay? I don't want us to ever be eager to say that. But if someone is utterly unwilling to listen, there is a time at which, and, and I will also say, it may be that I may decide not to cast my pearl before, pearls before swine, when for someone else that person is still willing to listen. Does that make sense? I think I think the, the determination that for me not to do this is not in any way a conclusion that no one else is permitted to either. So I, I ended up breaking off from their conversation. But one of his big arguments that that uh, Catholicism must be true is look at all of these miracles that the saints have done to these. Right? You know, here, here the, the priest did the mass and the, the uh, bread actually visibly changed into muscle tissue. Look, Roman Catholicism must be true. Okay? Um, or appearances of the Virgin Mary or, you know, this statue was bleeding. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the sort of fanciful nonsense I saw the Virgin Mary in my tortilla shell. You know, I'm not talking about that kind of nonsense. But, but the, the sort of things that sincere people will say, look, this is evidence for that. What I want us to realize. So, so here's the question. Other religions use miracles as proof for the truth of, of their religion. I'll ask a very loaded question. Are those genuine miracles? It is a loaded question. In the tribulation, the 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 Antichrist and his minions, well they do miraculous signs. And and Paul tells us that they will be so powerful 
that if it were possible, the very elect would die. Right? Is it possible that demonic activity... Do demons do genuine uh, signs in this world? You know, are there are, are there animistic religions in the world, primitive religions, in which miraculous signs are done? Sure. Absolutely. Now, I, I will I will be the first to tell you in any claim of someone witnessing miraculous activity. I'm going to be the first and loudest skeptic. It's just the way I'm wired. I've heard too many stories. Uh, and, and people, people tend to see what they want to see. Okay? For real. I'm, I tend to be a skeptic. But I'm not uh, cut off to the idea that, that miraculous signs may well be done in the support of false religion. What that means then is even if I were to prove a miracle in support of what I believe, that is not in itself convincing evidence that what I believe is the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and I think I think it's good to know that because if I make it if I make my apologetic all about the defense of the resurrection, it's probably going the wrong way. Okay. And, and I don't want to discount the resurrection. The, the apostles, if you read the book of Acts, the resurrection forms a big chunk of the apostolic preaching, right? And, 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 and what, what a, uh, apologetic function does the resurrection have in Peter's preaching? What does the, what does the resurrection prove for Peter? Or I, I would say it this way: that Jesus was the Christ, right? And, and I think I think that's valid. I can say, and God raised up this Jesus, and, and He is the Christ. Okay, but taken on its own as, as some sort of proof that Christianity must be true. Now, again, I want you to notice in Peter's preaching to say that the resurrection proved that Jesus is the Christ of God. Do you see how much of a Christian worldview is already in place to make that claim? That's not arguing, look, this stupendous sign has happened, therefore uh, 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 this whole religion must be true. It all depends on this. He is arguing primarily to whom? Jews. Within a framework of a sort of theism. Acts is a bit of a mess for us, right? You know, you've got people that, you know, the sincere Jew died the day after Jesus' resurrection. What, is he part of the church? Is he not part? Is he condemned? At transition, right? A bit of a mess. Um, but you've got people who have uh, a basic theistic worldview already, a, a scriptural theistic worldview, right? All the scripture up to that point through Malachi or through Second Chronicles if we want to use the Jewish way of reckoning. They believed it all. They believed that God. They believed Yahweh, right? Um, and so Peter's preaching takes on a different form there. And, and we'll talk about that. It has impact on how we do apologetics as well. I think there's a difference between talking to an atheist and talking to a Roman Catholic. Right? The atheist says God doesn't exist. The Roman Catholic says God does exist and he's revealed himself in his word. Okay, well, we're going to be dealing with things a little bit different, differently there. Um, I think perhaps we may deal with the, the Muslim the same way, but I'm getting at it myself. Do we get the idea of miracles and the problem of using miracles in and of themselves as a, as a defense? Um, so let's talk about some of the specifics. The, the resurrection, uh, so we've talked about this uh, a bit already. The argument from the resurrection uh, seeks to prove that, that the biblical account of Jesus' resurrection is the most likely explanation for his missing body. If you read arguments of this sort, they'll all say, okay, everyone says the tomb was empty. What's the best explanation for it? And, and they'll make, you know, okay, well, maybe the body was stolen or maybe... You know, the disciples went to the wrong tomb, or maybe this, or maybe... Well, those are all ridiculous, 
And so we're left with the only conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. I think those are true, okay, but we've already seen the deficiency of that. Even if I were to succeed in proving that Jesus of Nazareth was in a tomb, dead, and he got back up alive, I haven't proved Christianity. Without a biblical framework, the resurrection of Christ is simply an oddity in a chance universe. The unbeliever is justified to say in a chance universe weird things happen. Perhaps unrepeatable weird things, right? He may go on to suggest that we should do more research in this area. If people can be raised, we should seek to find the means to do so. Accepting the spectacular, even if he has no explanation on his worldview that fully justifies the event, is not irrational for the unbeliever. Talked about that at length. C, flood geology, scientific creationism, biblical archaeology. I say each of these is interesting and should be given due esteem by thoughtful believers. I want to make this clear. I'm not against flood geology or biblical archaeology or creationism, right? Um, you know, if, if I had opportunity, if I were in the area, I'd, I'd be interested in stopping in at that creation museum that they, it was Kentucky that they built on there. I think that would be fascinating. I think it would be very interesting. I'm, I'm thankful for organizations that take scripture seriously, Answers in Genesis, things along those lines. Um, I don't, I don't pretend to be a scientist. Okay, I don't know science, uh, and I don't uh, make claims outside my field. <laughs> um, you know, there are some. If you've ever been on Answers in Genesis website, and some of the papers that are on there about advanced physics and astronomy and stuff, it is blow your mind. Okay, if you don't know what they're talking about, you won't figure it out by reading their papers. Um, it's some pretty heady stuff, and I appreciate their work. I will let me recommend one resource for you. Uh, along these lines, and it's just, I, I think, invaluable. On the Answers in Genesis website, you can Google this. Uh, you may be able to search on your own website, but I would just I would just Google it. I think it's the first thing that comes up. It's a page called Arguments We Think Creationists Shouldn't Use, or should not use, something along those lines. Arguments Creationists Shouldn't Use. I think if you just Google that, you'll find it. Arguments Creationists Shouldn't Use. It's on Answers in Genesis website. And they go through all sorts of arguments that you will hear very commonly, uh, particularly among conservatives, uh, younger creationists, that answers in Genesis say, hey, guys, these, these arguments are really poor. These, these ones are, are not well supported. I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out to you, and, and it is, I, you know, I'm not, not going to discuss it at length right here. One of them is the canopy theory. And if, you're, if you've been a, a Christian for any length of time and and discussed uh, these issues, ever had a, a lecture on these. The idea that Earth was at one point surrounded by a water vapor canopy, which created kind of a uniform rainforesty environment, and then when it collapsed, that was part of the flood. Um, essentially, what Answers in Genesis says is if you do the computer modeling on it, um, any vapor canopy that's thick enough to add to the flood in any substantial amount would have been so thick that it would have blocked off all sunlight and caused an ice age. It, or at, more than an ice age. The, the, everything on the earth would have died. It just all would have been ice. Um, if, it's, if it's thin enough just to create that sort of global warming thing, it doesn't do anything for the flood whatsoever. So they're not saying it, it's not possible. They're just saying the, the whole idea has been hugely oversold. Uh, and these things are good to know. These things are good to know, right? It does not serve our king to present bad arguments in his defense. Okay? And that's, and that's why I say these things. I, my delight is not to, no pun intended, burst anyone's bubble or water vapor canopy. Um, but we, we have to be careful about what we say in defense of Christ. Uh, and, and so, uh, for that reason, I think that article is immensely valuable. It goes through a number of, of very common arguments and says, hey, not so good, not so good on this one, not so good on that one. That came up, uh, that came up for me talking to a gentleman uh, a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. He's a farmer, so I said, you know, before Noah was, uh, there was no rain. He says, wait a minute, how did the crops grow and stuff like that? And I said, well, I'm not sure. That's a good question, you know. Mm-hmm. Never thought about it. So I went back and I looked up the Genesis, answers of Genesis, the canopy theory, and it, uh, it kind of, I said, oh, but they're not, I don't want to bring that up. Yeah. So I did find some verses that says the, that the 
rivers were uh, flowing out of. Yeah. The rivers actually uh, probably provided the, the water or the, right. the nourishment, the water for the crops. Now, how they got the water out of the river to the crops. Sure. So, you know, it's, so I just kind of like, I'm uh, just like you. I, I don't want to present something and have an argument and then it just collapse on me. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the things that I've had to learn as a teacher and as an apologist is one of the best things that you can say in a debate is, you know what, I don't know. Let me get back to you. Um, none of us knows everything, right? Uh, I, I study this stuff. This is, this is my life, and there are plenty of times. You talk to people long enough, and they will ask you more of the off-the-wall questions, things that, you know, no book has prepared you for some people, right? And, and, and that's just the reality, and people are going to ask you questions, and there's sometimes that you're going to have to say, sometimes you have to say, you know what, I think I read, I, I just, Dr. Compton used to say in class, people would ask him, Dr. Compton, what, What's your position on this verse? And he, he would look at it and say, I know I have a position, but I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> because maybe he even wrote a paper about that at one point or another. But we just we just don't store all of that, right? And so there's no shame in, in, in saying. And I think it's good to say, hey, you know, I'm going to do, do some more research on this. And, uh, and we get back with him. We all have to do that. We all have to do that. Um, but like I said, that's a, that's a good resource. And I appreciate what you said there. Um, so I say, given a biblical worldview, we ought to expect that science and history would provide evidences consistent with Christianity, right? Am I surprised that there is evidence in favor of creation? No, I'm not surprised with that at all, because creation happened, right? I'm not surprised that, for instance, there was a biblical civilization called the Hittites that for many years secular historians believed didn't exist. And then, ooh, lo and behold, they found archaeological evidence for the Hittites. That doesn't surprise me, right? That's exactly what I'd expect. However, my faith is not resting on the archaeological evidence for the Hittites. Um, I say... I, I say here, in fact, a believer will not allow that there is any evidence at all rightly interpreted which contradicts or undermines his faith. Ultimately, is there evidence that that um, uh, secular evolution has taken place? And the answer is no. No, no evidence rightly understood is, is, is says that. None. There isn't any. Now, that's a really radical claim. But... The consistent evolutionist says, how much evidence exists for creation? The answer is, none. Notice, at the sharpest point, this is a conflict of worldviews. It's not a conflict of evidence. Alright? And, that, and that's exactly the point here. Um, our faith is not founded upon these evidences, but we should rejoice when good scientists and archaeologists report findings consistent with God's word. Okay? So I rejoice in these men's work. But this points to a very difficult problem that arises when apologists attempt to use this data for apologetic purposes. The unbeliever also has a, a, a system of thought in which certain explanations are ruled out from the very beginning of the discussion. So what we just said. Given such a mindset, even the most compelling evidences, evidence for which the unbeliever has no answer, will be considered anomalies that future research will handle appropriately. I, I want you to see, both of us do this. Okay? Both of us do this. Not you and me, unbeliever and believer alike, right? So you go to the unbeliever and you say, look at this article on answers in Genesis. Or, or we don't even have to, the I, right? If you're familiar with um, uh, Intelligent Design, the Intelligent Design books, Michael Behe and, and Philip Johnson and, and the guys that write these books on Intelligent Design. Good books, worthwhile reading. Now, do note, most of these guys are theistic evolutionists. It's worth noting. Very few of them are younger creations. But, that being said, the, the, the I is a big thing for intelligent design because here's, here's the big concept for intelligent design. And you may be familiar with this language. Irreducible complexity. Okay, and the classic example is the mousetrap. Which part of the mousetrap can you take away and still have a good mousetrap? And the answer is 
None. It all has to be there or it's totally worthless. It couldn't evolve bit by bit. Does that make sense? You know, I've got this one thing and, and then it developed a little metal ring and that helped it catch some mice. You know, that doesn't even make sense, right? Um, and, and, and so the argument from irreducible complexity is there are some things that just couldn't have evolved. The, the eye is considered one of them. The parts, uh, the, in, the parts in our eye all need each other, or else the whole thing's useless. If you, if you have one, or if you have all of them and miss one, it, it's, it's pointless. Alright. So irreducible complexity. And you show this to the unbeliever. And, and maybe he says, you know what, listen. That's really, that's really powerful stuff. I don't have an answer for it. But, evolution is such a compelling worldview. It explains so much. I think we'll figure that out at some point. And you walk away and you go, stupid, stubborn, unbeliever. Right? Now, he comes up to you the next day and he says, I, I found this website with all these Bible contradictions. Right? And, and so here's this passage in Chronicles that says, you know, David's army had this number. And here's this, this passage in Kings that says David's army had this number. Explain that. You look at it, you look at it, you read some commentaries and you go, you know, maybe the original author wrote something different and, and what we have to this day is, you know, kind of a corrupted copy, but really, I, the best I can come up with, I don't have a really great answer for you. But, I still know Christianity, and even though I can't explain it, I know the Bible is the Word of God, and that Christianity is true. And what does the unbeliever do? Stupid thing! <laughs> right? And he walks away. The, the, the reality is, both of us do, we, everybody does this. We all have systems that we interpret the evidence in light of the system. This is the whole idea. This is the genius of presuppositionalism. When we're discussing things with the unbeliever, the problem is not evidence. The problem is worldview. And until we get to the question of worldview, we're, we're frittering about at the edges of the discussion and not getting to the heart of the matter. Okay? And so I can, I can shovel evidence with the unbeliever all day, and he might take some of it and make it fit his worldview, and he may take some of it and shovel it out of his, uh, you know, he, he, you shovel it to him, he shovels it out. Um, and, and, and what he accepts, he, he incorporates into his already God-hating worldview. And I haven't gotten anywhere. I've got to seek to undermine his worldview. Um, so I, I, I give one last example here, Noah's Ark. Uh, for instance, it has long been the project of believing archaeologists, including a number of nut jobs, throw that out there. I want to throw that out there. Some of these guys that claim to have seen Noah's Ark are not competent archaeologists. As Christians, we need to be careful who we choose as friends. Okay? Some of the people that are, are arguing for things that we would really love to be true are loony. And, and we need to recognize that. Okay? Uh, it has long been a project of believing archaeologists to find the remains of Noah's Ark. Should such compelling evidence be found, it would seem that the Christian would have an irrefutable case against the unbeliever, right? We've had this story all along, and look, we found the boat. Come on, guys, that's got to be true, right? I mean, that seems really potent. Look, such evidence should be convincing, yet there is no reason, given the unbeliever's worldview, that there was not some great flood, and that a large boat with survivors landed on a mountain, and this event became mythologized in the biblical account. You know, it's, it, the arguments have been made. Noah's story, the story of Noah must be true because all cultures have this flood story. Right? Now that's interesting. Does that mean that Noah's story is the true one? And I'm not trying. I'm not trying to undermine your faith. <laughs> okay, I'm not trying to. Under, but I'm saying these arguments that we use are really specious arguments. They're not compelling. Once we we find them compelling, why do we find them compelling? Because we already agree with the conclusion, right? We, we have to start thinking like unbelievers. I hate to say that. We have to start thinking about unbelievers and the way we evaluate our arguments. Okay, so let's uh, quickly finish the notes here. Cumulative case, apologetics. Some apologi apologists have acknowledged that none of the traditional theistic proofs considered in isolation conclusively prove the existence of God. 
This approach to apologetics has been derisively labeled the 10 leaky buckets apologetics. So here's the idea. No one of these arguments proves the existence of God, but taken together, they make it really likely. Okay? So it's the 10 leaky buckets idea. I've got a leaky bucket, so I put it in another leaky bucket. Right? And I put that one in another leaky and, and so the idea is if I get enough leaky buckets, I slow the, the leak of the water. What's the problem? It's still leaky, right? If the argument against the cumulative case approach centers on the lack of certainty that it provides, that it leaves the unbeliever with an out, right? We said at the outset, we want to leave the unbeliever without excuse. The moral certainty of ten probable arguments does not become absolute certainty by combining uh, those arguments. The unbeliever can still say that there is some reason to believe Christianity is not true and that God does not exist. Uh, you can read the end there. It really summarizes a lot of the critique that we've offered all the way through this. Next week, we will start talking about the... And really, some of it will be review, but we're going to put into, into a uh, hard form the transcendental argument for the existence of God. Okay? So these have all been arguing on the unbeliever's worldview. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to undermine the unbeliever's worldview. Show him that as soon as he says anything... Basically, the idea of, of a transcendental argument is, if what you say is true, Mr. Unbeliever, what you say can't be true. Okay? And we'll look at some specific examples of that, and then we're going to talk about practically how to use that, how to get into, an, into a, a, a discussion in which a transcendental argument comes up. All right? Uh, any, any quick questions? Any thoughts? Thank you again for coming.